chapter 6 tonight. Lots of prayer covering tonight. Just had Kevin pray for me as we get into uh, one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Uh, Very controversial, uh, as the verses before us have proved to be a fierce theological battleground uh, over the last 2,000 years. Uh, They can bring up two, this passage can bring up two very important questions. First of all, can a true Christian fall away from the faith and forfeit their salvation? Secondly, once a person confesses Christ, is their eternity sealed regardless of their behavior on earth? Will the saints ultimately persevere till the end? Once a person is saved, will they be saved always? It's much to be feared as we study it because our theories and our prejudices can so cloud our vision and our minds and our hearts as we study this passage that we can be incapable of examining this text without impartiality and just examine it and let it say what it say what, say what it says uh, Uh, and all of its various terminology as we look through the text. Uh, Satan loves to use Hebrews 6 to condemn backslidden Christians, as we see a harsh, a severe warning against apostasy, against falling away from the faith. We see this warning explained in verses 4 through 6 and illustrated in verses 7 and 8. And like I said, Satan loves to use this passage to condemn backsliders. So many Christians think they've they've committed some unpardonable sin that it's impossible to be forgiven of. But as we come to the text tonight, we remember the whole of the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These are all very encouraging passages as we go through this great uh, storm of life and battle the temptations that are coming across us every day. We have comfort in passages that we've studied in the book of Hebrews so far, like Hebrews 4, 14 and 16, knowing that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So let us hold fast our confession for we do not have, uh, excuse me, technical error. (laughs) For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So already we're seeing that, you know, someone who's a Christian is going to stumble and bumble throughout life. We're going to sin. We're going to fall. We're going to err. We're going to wander at times. 
And yet we see in these passages that we have a great high priest who's been tempted, but he didn't sin. See, that's the difference. Our high priest was tempted in all points as we are, but he never sinned. That means we have, (laughs) we do, okay? But because he's a sympathetic high priest, we can come to him anytime, day or night, even after the matter, even after the sin, we can come to him and find mercy. And not only mercy, but gifts, grace in time of need. As we get into this passage, we want to keep that on our mind because it's real quickly to forget things like that as we come to this passage regarding eternal security, regarding the perseverance of the saints. Verse four says of Hebrews chapter six, we studied the first three verses last week. And so we're beginning in verse four tonight. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And I just, as we go, you notice there's kind of a list going on here and you might just note that, all right? These little things, right? So there's, there's a group of people who have once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they've tasted the good word of God, verse five and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So we begin with verse four with an impossibility. It's impossible for a group of people who have A, B, C, D, and E, to renew them to repentance since they crucify for themselves the son of God and put him to an open shame, okay? Impossible. Uh, The the Greek can lead you to think incapable. It's it's incapable for a person when they've fallen away, when they've become apostate. Once they've been enlightened or had the light shine upon them, The language speaks of knowledge and having something be made known to you. These individuals had become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And as you read this passage, whether you have held to a a once saved, always saved position, or whether you've held to a, you know, a, a Christian can leave their salvation position, even Warren Wearsby, who's a staunch once saved, always saved, uh, theologian advocates, uh, he's an advocate He had to concede and he said to resist the phrase partakers of the Holy Spirit to mean that they only went along with the Holy Spirit to an certain extent is to ignore the meaning of the verb. It means to become sharers. So Wearsby, I've concluded that the people addressed were true believers, not near professors. The same term is used in Hebrews 3.1 and 3.14 to express and to note bona fide true believers. So we got to remember who the letter was written to. The letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Hebrew Christians who had become Messianic Jews. Okay, They were proclaiming that anyways. They were professing that anyways. And due to persecution, uh, due to trials and the sufferings of being a disciple, um, they were beginning to go back to the religious system of Judaism, to go back to the elements 
of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, even to go back to animal sacrifices and, and those sacrifices and to go back to those uh, priests, to have the priests making sacrifices and to have the priests be the atonement makers and to be the uh, mediators for them to God and from God to them. And so they were going back, or they had the desire to at this point when the letter was written. They were falling away and having the temptation to fall away. They wanted to go back to a system that was the shadow of Christ, not Christ himself. They wanted to go back to a works-based system of righteousness, a fleshly, materialistic-based system of righteousness, rather than the system of righteousness that is based upon Jesus's perfect life, perfect death, and victorious resurrection. We need to remember that as we go through this. We see this is a group of people, verse 5, who've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And we're actually going to pull these verses apart a little bit later in our study tonight. But we see in verse 6, if these folks were to fall away, to renew them to repentance, uh, it's an impossible thing. Since, and you want to know that, note that word since, This is a group of people who are in a place of crucifying again for themselves the Son of God and putting him to an open shame. We've reread the verses a couple times so far, and that's good. We want to have these verses as much as we can. I've written these verses out many, many times today and read them many times just to try to get them in my heart. If they fall away, if they forsake Jesus, this is a deliberate, complete and final repudiation of Christ. It's a sin for which there is no forgiveness. As we've looked in the book of Hebrews so far, far, the author writes of three pastoral problems. At the end of chapter five, the Hebrews that are written to here had spiritual, a lack of spiritual intimacy with Christ. They were dull in their relationship with the Lord. In the first three verses that we studied last week in chapter six, They were immature spiritually. They come to need milk and not solid food. They were babies in Christ. This was a time that they were to be teaching others and they themselves still needed to be teached. (laughs) Some of us need to be teached. Good thing we have the vice principal of the high school here. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, Joel. To be taught, okay? Uh, And they should have been discipling others and they were still needing the elementary principles of the faith. And so we see that now, because of all that, and in light of all that, there's a danger of the peril of spiritual apostasy. A church that's marked by darkness and doubt and gloom, indecision, and consequently, it would be a walk in which the power of Christ's love would not be manifest or characterized in them. If they continued in this state, what else remained but falling away? I mean, they are on the brink, guys. They are on the precipice. They were by the edge of the cliff. And so this is a warning passage to them. As Arthur Pink says, the ignorance which springs from spiritual neglect begins its own punishment of apathetic dullness on the once clear mind and robs the spirit of its power to detect the wily methods of the devil. It is in the presence of God alone that the Christian can exert his spiritual energies with effect. Abiding in Christ maintains us in that presence. Faith dies at once when it is separate from the object. 
the extreme experience of an advancing Christian is that of continual initiation. So in this very book, we're going to see exhortations and warnings and spurrings on charges for these Hebrews to not forsake the assembling together of the saints, but to be together and to exhort one another daily and so much more as they see the day approaching to be in fellowship, to continue in the apostles' doctrine, to continue in prayer, to continue in the love feast, to continue in communion. Daily, daily, daily. We've studied that. In the book of Acts, you see that. Peter tells us that. Hebrews tells us that. And when you begin to neglect that, you will slowly find yourself away from the fire, getting colder and colder and colder. It's a dangerous place to be. And that's what the author is getting at. All right, Regardless of your theological position that you want to stake your flag in the ground on, the author is saying, stay in the fire. Stay in the fire. Because once those embers are out, they get colder and colder until they're gone. Adolf Safir, remarking on the passage of the verse here, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame, Safir says, having thus entered into the sphere, his name's Adolf Safir, so, okay, having entered into the sphere, and I just noticed that, of new covenant manifestation, anyone who willfully abandoned it could only relapse into the phase of Judaism which crucified the Lord Jesus. So the Hebrews here are in, you know, For them, this is a specifically dangerous place to be because for them to go back was to mean they are siding with those who crucified Jesus. That's where they're at. That's their culture. That's what they're saying, and they know it, and they knew it. Saphir goes on to say, there was no other alternative for them but either to go on to the full knowledge of the heavenly priesthood of Christ and to the believer's acceptance and worship through the mediator in the sanctuary above or fall back into the attitude not of the godly Israelites before Pentecost, such as John the Baptist and those who waited for the promised redemption, nor even into the condition of those for whom the Savior prayed, for they know not what they do, but this group of people would be falling into a state of willful conscience enmity against Christ and the sin of rejecting him and putting him to an open shame. It was a big deal that the Hebrews would be going back to the religious system of Judaism. They were going back to another priest, going back to another mediator, choosing the world to be their God rather than Christ Jesus. And so here in the book of Hebrews is one out of two of the most striking warnings in all of the New Testament, and certainly in Hebrews itself even, where the author beseeches the Hebrews not to make a shipwreck of their faith. Tonight, I'm going to show you all various views of how this passage could be interpreted. But first, we need to ask, first of all, who are the people being described here in this passage? We know the Hebrews and who is being written to, but, but who is this? Verses uh, 4 through 6. Uh, and also, what was their spiritual condition? Some believe this passage is describing believers, all right, and we've, we've mentioned that. Even Warren Wearsby, a once saved, always saved theologian, says, man, it's a Christian. It's a Christian. It's a believer. But then they tweak it so that 
If a believer sins at all, it's impossible for them to be restored. So that's how they read it. This is Christians, and if there's any sin whatsoever, even once there's no way they ever can repent or ever come back to Jesus, you're gone like a freight train, gone like yesterday, gone like a soldier in the Civil War, bang, bang. Adam, you've been driving the tractor. You know what I'm talking about. The opposite of the end of the pendulum says that this can't be a believer because a believer can always be restored. Some say, check it out. The author has been using the word we in the whole uh, epistle, but now the pronoun changes to those people and they. So it can't be believers, okay? Some say they, they appear to be enlightened and only appearance. They've only mentally made a decision for Christ, yet they're not saved. So they are apparent believers, Some say, look, they haven't eaten. They've only sampled. They haven't been sealed with the Holy Spirit. They haven't drank of the waters of life that Jesus told the woman of the well about. That if you drink of me, you will never ever thirst again. Jesus says that those who endure to the end will be saved. But the warning here in this passage is to those who would stop. To those who would not finish well. Now, most camps would agree with Sinclair Ferguson, who says, the New Testament warns us by precept and example that some professing Christians may not persevere in their faith in Christ to the end of their lives. The Bible warns of it, and experience confirms the fact. And we all know that. We all can think of people who've, you know, turned their shoulder towards Christ and walked away. Sinclair Ferguson makes the note, though, that it's those who are professing Christians. Most would also agree these warnings are not given to cause despair in the souls of the sensitive people. Those that would put undue application of it into their lives and just constantly under condemnation when they trip up and when they stumble. And now I'm going to hell and I got to get resaved again. And this is constant cycle. That would be an undue application of the text. What the author is saying that those who are in Christ Jesus will no longer walk in moral carelessness. You can't teach in the Bible that it's just Get saved and then go do whatever you want to do. Live for your flesh and live for this world. In the Christian's life, there will be a striving for a holy life. There will be a battle going on to mortify sin. 2 Timothy 2.19 says that those who name the name of Christ should depart from iniquity. To quote Saphir again, The apostle regards the retrogression of the Hebrews with dismay. He sees in it the danger of an entire, confirmed, willful, and irrecoverable apostasy from the truth. He beholds them on the brink of a precipice, and he therefore lifts up his voice, and with vehement yet loving earnestness, he warns them against so fearful and evil. He sees them getting close to the cliff. And so he places warning placards, warning signs all over the edge saying, get back, get back, get back. The first view that we'll we'll study quickly tonight 
of what this passage could be speaking of is that of a hypothetical situation. Okay, that of a hypothetical situation. This view would affirm that uh, this never really would happen. It would never go so far. It's hypothetically proving that a Christian can't lose their salvation or that Jesus would have to be crucified again. And the IVP Bible commentary uh, goes so far to say that it's just hypothetical. Could this really happen? Could verses uh, four through six really happen? This passage is a warning that if Christian was to fall away or renounce their faith in Jesus Christ and turn their back on his provision and atonement for their sin, they would no longer be saved. And this point of view just says, could that really happen? Would anybody get that far if they were actually born again? The second view, uh, which isn't necessarily in contrast, and by the way, the views that I'm giving tonight, it's not yeah, I'm going to give you the cruddiest ones first and then like the best one at the end. I'm not doing that, okay? Um, every time I teach this, I'm like, man, I, I wrestle with this. And um, there's just really godly scholars on this side that, that would think, you know, yeah, a Christian can leave their salvation. There's really godly Jesus-loving scholars on this side. And, you know, I, I've been reading and studying both of them. I'm going to present uh, a little bit of both. And you guys are all Bible reading Christians and I want you to do your studying as well and look at the gospel and look at the entirety of scripture to see where you land. But I'm not trying to be like, that's view number one and then here's view number two and it's still pretty stinky. And then, oh yeah, let me enter in like the best view. Okay, um, not gonna do it. But view number two is, and you, you know, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I think, I think that's it, okay. Um, View number two is that these were almost believers, almost Christians. I alluded to that a little earlier. When asked how this could be anything other than a genuine Christian, I mean, think of the A, B, C, D, and E that we read about, things that seem to just absolutely be describing a Christian. We want to just place a seed of thought into your minds. A man named Judas Iscariot. A man that by profession up until the very end seemed to be everything that verses four through six speak of. A classic chilling reminder to all who profess faith as an individual being so close to the action, being so involved and yet being so far, not actually included in the family of faith. Judas Iscariot would be an example of this almost believer. John Brown wrote from Scotland at the end of the 19th century, no saint behaving like a sinner can legitimately enjoy the comfort that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is fitted and intended to communicate to every saint acting like a saint. You can't enjoy just all of the promises and the comforts that that an eternal security stance would give you if you're living in absolute debauchery. That comfort's not given to you in the New Testament. I hear it with frequency. This individual has no interest in the gospel, no interest in the church, in worshiping, but it's a good thing that they lifted their hand up at that crusade or that conference or that church service or they went up front and that like sealed the deal and now they can just live however they want. Thank goodness for eternal security. That's not what the doctrine of perseverance of the saints or eternal security is supposed to bring comfort for. Hebrews tells us that that individual needs to examine themselves to see if they're even of the faith. 
a good warning. It's not the eternal security that the pages of the New Testament pound out. Eternal security is not to tell us that we are kept regardless of the conduct of our lives. The New Testament tells us we are kept through faith. Our position is concurrent on our faith. Where there's no faith, there's no salvation. There is evidence of our salvation only by our perseverance. Perseverance of the saints is proved by persistence of the saint. As a saint is persisting, there can be confidence. As someone is living for the God of this age and the God of this world without even an ounce of conviction or an ounce of battling, there is fear. There's fear, and that's when we enter in church discipline time, like we studied a few weeks ago. Hey, man, we've begged you. We've gone through the scriptural context of church discipline, and you just refuse to repent of sin. You're choosing the God of this world, and we can no longer vouch that you're like a child of the kingdom. We're not saying you're not. That's God's judgment. But you can't fellowship here just hunky-dory like everything's okay when there is this obvious rebellion in your heart against the God who suffered and bled and died for you. It's a dangerous place. That's what the author is saying. Alistair Begg said, in holding steady to the end, we show ourselves to be held. In, In holding steady to the end, we show ourselves to be held. John eight thirty one says that the Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide, and how many times have we read in the book of Hebrews so far, if you continue, if you continue, if you hold fast the confession of your faith firm to the end, These are the clauses that come with a doctrine like eternal security. These individuals of chapter 6, verses 4 through, really, verse 8, these individuals are not just drifting away or backslidden, but they are apostate. And their apostasy is deliberate, it's public and open, it's continuous, They are willfully, totally renouncing Christ and taking their place among his enemies. Yes, at one time their emotions had been stirred by some sort of a gospel presentation and they may have even responded much like Herod. He seemed to have a pretty good relationship going on with John the Baptist right until his stepdaughter did a little dance and he had to chop off John the Baptist's head as he slices the sword down, you know I love you, right? You know I love you. It's like, I'm not getting that right now. (laughs) Not feeling the love. The group that this section deals with had persuaded others that they truly belonged to Christ, but over time their profession was proving to be empty. One man said, they professed Christ but did not possess Christ. And Christ did not possess them. And just as I teach, is this not a warning 
for us today? Is this not a warning for our church today? Just people that just no fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life, no yielding, no heeding the Holy Spirit, just doing what they want to do and living for self. And all I would say is it's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. And we've looked at chapter three and chapter four. Today, if you hear his voice, today, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear the sermon being preached and it stirs your heart and you're sensing, man, I need to repent, then repent and obey and believe the gospel. Obey and believe the word. Profess Christ and possess Christ and let Christ possess you. These individuals skated grace but did not embrace grace. Pink says, they're not said to be justified in this passage or forgiven or accepted in the beloved, nor is anything said of their faith, love, or obedience. Yet these are the very things which distinguish a real child of God. They had been enlightened and this position says they'd been exposed to the light and this position would say more, there was just an exposure to it. Just like the, the prophecies over Bethlehem having Jesus born there out of Malachi, I believe it is, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. These people preferred Christ to Judaism and paganism. They perhaps had an intellectual perception of Jesus, but not a personal relationship with Jesus. Their soul had not been satisfied. This was a group that had tasted of the heavenly gift, the gospel. They only had a taste. And this, this viewpoint would say they only tasted of Jesus. They only tasted of the things of God, but they didn't consume. They shared in the Holy Spirit and they knew the influence of God's spirit upon their lives. They were convicted of sin, interested in the things of Christ, but they shook it off and got on with their life when things got tough. They were impressed with the resurrection. They knew, the, you know, they knew of devils and demons. They determined and were convinced of these things. But just like those in John chapter six who were fed by the five loaves and the two fish, and were only enamored with the spectacular miracles, Jesus, when it came time to him, say, that's great that I filled your gut, but now it's time for me to fill your entire life, your heart, your soul, your mind. And if you don't eat and consume all that I am, you can't be my disciple. And everybody left but the 12. And so this group of people, seem to be those who are, were following Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, uh, eating the fish and the loaves. We baptize at the profession of faith, not the assurance of salvation. They tasted the good word of God. They'd found that God is faithful to his word and seen the benefits of the Messiah's presence. John Owen, the uh, early church uh, father, Puritan preacher, wrote the book on uh, mortification of sin in Romans chapter eight. He said, the person's 
here described then are those who have to a certain degree understood and relished the revelation of mercy. Like the stony ground hearers, they have received the word with a transient of joy. So it appears that these individuals had the seed go and it seemed to be sprouted and it's exciting and there's joy. But the moment any kind of persecution or trials or struggles come, it gets scorched and it's gone. They had an acquaintance with the gospel to gain a measure of blessings from it, but not enough to aggravate their sin as they go to their doom. Verse six, if they fall away to renew them to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to an open shame. These individuals who've fallen away, and that's the language, fallen away, apostasy, turning their backs on the very truth that would have brought them to repentance, turning their back on the word of God, the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift, the blood of Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce says, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent. But scripture and experience alike suggest that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. They've hardened their heart and hardened their heart and hardened their heart to a place where like the Pharisees committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, calling the things of Jesus, works of Beelzebub, that Jesus has a demon. That's when Jesus said that. He says, you're gonna call all of this, the works of the demon man, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's where these individuals were at. They were on an open public uh, rebellion against Jesus Christ. And so if you're convicted of your sin, and you are pointed to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, don't turn away tonight just because you think you'll have another opportunity later. We're not promised tomorrow. We're promised right now, today, if you hear his voice, turn and repent. I wanna read a section of a book I've been reading lately called Pilgrim's Progress. It's not really a section, it's a couple paragraphs. It's a little bit of the these and the thous in the old King James written by John Bunyan, a guy who spent almost his whole Christian life in prison. And he writes of a Christian, the pilgrim, whose name is Christian. Christian sets off from the city, his hometown called the city of destruction to a heavenly city. He goes after seeing the burden on his back, his sin and his depravity. And he sets off towards the kingdom of light, Mount Zion, a heavenly city. He pleads with his wife and kids to come, but they won't come with him. And as he embarks upon his journey, they sit outside their house screaming that he'd come back home, dad, come back home. And you see that Christian counts the cost of discipleship when he puts his fingers in his ears and he goes, life, life, I choose life. He hates his wife and he hates his children in comparison to the love that he has for Jesus Christ. His wife and kids won't come, but as he sets out on his journey, two fellows, one named Obstinate and one named Pliable come along. Obstinate is only there to be a hard man and to try to turn Christian back. When he's unsuccessful, he turns away. Now Pliable continues on just to see what it's all about. Shouldn't we at least see what this journey is about? 
But soon after they embark, they come to what's called, see if I can say it right, the sloth of despond. All right, the marsh of despair. And it's there, it says a little bit later on, that everyone's just conviction of sin is just dripping off of all the hearts and it just kind of ends up in this nasty place that they're trudging through, a quicksandy, murky swamp land, the sloth of despond. And as they trudge through it, deep, sinking deep into the mire, pliable can't make it anymore. What are we doing? This is so stupid. This is so hard. It's not worth it. And he goes back. He's pliable. And that's what you got to love about the book. Everyone's name shows their character. A man named Help comes along, and guess what he does? He helps Christian up out of the murky, miry clay and sets his feet upon these paths that are set, that are, that are hard to see, sort of the straight and narrow. As Christian is set on these, this path and gets past, past the sloth, he's walking alone by himself. When he spies far off, someone coming towards him across a field to meet him. The gentleman's name was Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He dealt in the town of Carnal Policy, a very great town, also hard by from when Christian came. Christian explains that he's going to the heavenly city to have the burden removed from his back. But Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, why would you seek to be eased this way, seeing that so many dangers obtain? Uh, so many dangers attend it, especially since, if you would just have patience to hear me, Mr. Worldly Mindset says, Mindset says, I could direct you to the obtaining of what you desire without the dangers that you would in this way run yourself into. Yes, and the remedies at hand. Besides, I will add that instead of those dangers, you'll meet with much safety and much friendship and much content. And Christian says, sir, I pray, open this secret to me. And listen to this. Worldly wise men says, why in the yonder village, the village's name is morality. There dwells a gentleman whose name is legality, a very judicious man and a man of very good name. He has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from their shoulders. Yes, to my knowledge, he's done a great deal of good this way. Aye, and besides, he has skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits with their burden. To him, as I said, you may go and be helped presently. His house is not quite a mile from this place, and he should not be able, uh, if he's not able to be home, he has a pretty young man, his son, whose name is Civility, that can do it to speak on, as well as the old gentleman himself. I say it's there that you'll be eased of your burden so that you can go back to your wives and kids. Sir, Christian says, what's the way to this honest man's house? And worldly wise men says, do you see that high hill? Yes, very well. By that high hill you must go, and the first house you come to is his. Now listen to this. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was, uh, when he, it's funny, when he was got now hard by the hill, <laughs> it seemed so high, and also that side of it was next to the wayside, it hung so much over that Krishna was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, where he, there he stood still and didn't know what to do. 
Now his burden seemed to be heavier while he was standing in its way. There came flashes of fire from the mountain, and Christian was afraid that he would be burned. So he sweat and shook for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he'd taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that, he saw evangelist coming to meet him at the sight of whom he began to blush with shame. So you see that that he was told, don't go on in the journey to the kingdom. Don't go on on this path of, of grace and the path of Christ. The straight and narrow is really what it is. But go over here to the easy way. Just do it yourself and do it this way. Through morality, through civility, through legalism. And that's the same temptation that the Hebrews were hearing uh, here in the book of Hebrews. Enter an evangelist. That's the author of this book of Hebrews. He's the evangelist. And no doubt when the Hebrews heard evangelists preaching, they began to blush with shame. As evangelists had a severe and dreadful countenance and reasons with Christian. And he says to him, how is it that you've turned so quickly aside? You're out of the way. And a long dissertation takes place and evangelist says, give earnest things to the thing." Earnest heed to the things that I shall tell you. I will now show thee who it was that deluded thee, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, and who it was of whom he sent thee. The man who met you is one worldly wise man, because he savors only the doctrine of this world. Therefore, he always goes to the town of morality to church, and partly because he loves that doctrine best, for it saves him best from the cross. And because he is of this carnal temper, therefore he seeks to pervert my ways, though right. Now, there are three things in this man's counsel that you must utterly abhor. Number one, his turning thee out of the way. Number two, his laboring to render the cross odious to thee. And his setting thy feet in that way that leads unto the administration of death. And that's the same battle and lie. You, you, hey, Hebrews, have you heard of Pilgrim's Progress? You know, you could read the story of Christian being led astray. Oh, if you go this way, there will be less suffering. You won't have to bear the cross. Doesn't the cross seem hard to pack and hard to carry? And it sets your feet in the way of death. That's where the Hebrews were at. And that's why the author warns them. The author is not describing the same experience that we read of in Romans chapter 7. That's the common Christian pilgrimage. Why do I not do the things that I want to do? And why am I doing the things I don't want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of sin and death, this body of sin and death? That's the pilgrim's life. That's not what Hebrews 6 is about. Have you found yourself going there? That Hebrews 6 is all about like stumbling and backsliding and struggling with sin and you're going to hell because there's no way you can ever confess and repent. That's not what Hebrews 6 is about. The Hebrews 6 individuals have renounced Christianity altogether. They reject its ordinances, openly, divine, it's, uh, openly deny its divine origin, live in habitual ungodliness, and the text shows us they cry for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If the crucifixion took place today, they would be in the crowd going, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. Well, you were at the Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> 
How did that happen? Well, whatever it was, they didn't continue. They turned to sin with enthusiasm, renounced the Christian profession, had no remorse in doing that, and continued that way to the end of their life. It shows that they were clearly, despite all other appearances, never born of God. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They would openly proclaim that Jesus is an imposter, identify themselves to be his crucifier. And because they are currently, excuse me, in that state, it's impossible for them to repent. They're in that state. They're yelling crucify. Impossible to repent. View number three. Those were almost Christians, all right? Had an appearance, once vocalized, but the root never took. Another view is that in examining these different uh, points, uh, this was a genuine Christian who began as a sincere follower and who fell away and left their salvation, not lose their salvation like they lost their keys or the remote control they left willingly apostates no longer believers as you look at that they were once enlightened and this is just some studying that i did today the greek word once it actually means once for all okay so it appears that these individuals were once for all enlightened had rays shed upon them They were brightened up, enlightened, illuminated. They'd been given light. It means to make, to see. So whatever these individuals apparently saw. I was at the Oasis the other day preaching the gospel, actually the sower and the seed passage. And this guy goes, brother, can I just interrupt you real quick? And I'm like, no, but okay. No, I was like, yeah, sure. What do you got to say? He's like, man, my, (laughs) I use the accent for a reason. My whole family has gone to church my whole life. They all read the Bible, and I never understood it. But right now, man, I understand everything you're saying, and I've never, under, I've never got this before. I said, man, what's your name? And he says, Billy Bob. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. I feel like that's a here's your sign joke, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, so Billy Bob. <laughs> I said, Billy Bob, this is very exciting. And I said, man, it, it seems like you're illuminated. It seems like you're grasping it. That's very exciting. But here's the deal, man. A seed has been put on your heart today. And there's all these different types of soil. And I pray right now, man, that it is in a cultivated soil, a heart that's cultivated soil. Here's all these other ones, man. The bird could snatch it the second you walk away. Uh, man, it could be upon the rocks. It could be upon uh, you know, thorns and the cares of this world will choke it out. I pray today. And, and, you know, his girlfriend and his dad were there with him. And they're all like, us too, us too, you know. And then like four other people on this side of the oasis, they're like, us too, you know. And like we had people raising their hands and stuff. I'm like, all right, let's pray, you know. And I'm like, I'll be at the church this afternoon. Come, I'll teach you about being a disciple and a follower of Jesus. No. <laughs> Anybody? Somebody? If Kenny Box was here, he'd do his little cricket noise that he does. Cricket, cricket, 
cricket, cricket. And then I ran into the dad a little while. I'm like, what happened to Billy Bob? He's like, ah, no, no. And it just, you know, quick, quick root, quick apparent root, but gone. Maybe. I don't know. But I'll tell you one exciting thing. One of the girls there that, that responded has been at church the last two Sundays and stood up for purity. All right. So her name's Marie. She's not here tonight. But I'm, I'll point, I'm like, So that's exciting, right? But you just see this. You see this as you're ministering and you see this as you're pleading with people to be disciples and, you know, it seems like Billy Bob was made to see that day. But it didn't take, as far as I know. I planted Apollos waters. God gave the increase. Hebrews 10.32 says, Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. So the Hebrew writer, uh, the Hebrews had been illuminated, the, the people that were being written to. Remember when you were illuminated and you endured all the suffering? And it could be asked today, tonight, have you been illuminated? Have you been enlightened? If church is just like drudgery and Oh my gosh, there's got to be something else to be doing right now. And you have no love for Christ, no love for the church and not the building. We don't really care if you love it, but the people in it, the real church. If you have no passion for holiness and to battle against sin, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place tonight. And it wouldn't appear that you've been enlightened. And if you're even hearing this right now, cry out for illumination. Like with like a little child will be like, I want candy. All right. Just sh- I want illumination. I want to see. Listen, these people, they tasted the heavenly gift, the freedom to experience. And, you know, and this is where I just like, man, I'm, I'm reading up brilliant guys that are saying, man, taste means to like, Ugh, salty, you know? And I'm reading guys that are like, man, taste means to consume. And he's got great points, and I'm looking it up in the original, and it's like, man, all I know is there's stinking warnings here for us, okay? You know, the word is used of Jesus tasting death for us. In the book of Hebrews, that same word is used. Like, Jesus didn't just, death. He, the literal is, filled his palate with death, Okay? So perhaps these people had filled their palate with the heavenly gift of salvation. See, they didn't consume the heavenly gift. They just tasted, okay, man, I don't know. All I know is if they're not walking with Jesus and they're giving him the finger and turning the shoulder to him and doing what they want to do, danger zone. Take a ride into the danger zone. Goose and Iceman and all those guys. I don't know. Have you tasted of eternal life? Have you been illuminated? Have you tasted of eternal life? Being partakers of the Holy Spirit. That word partaker, and if you're reading like an NIV, it says sharers of the Holy Spirit. Verse five, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. I know we're reading it over and over again, but this word tasted 
It, again, would mean to eat or experience the good word of God. Just like Jeremiah, he said that the words were found and I ate them and it was joy and rejoicing to my heart. Eaten of the power of the age to come, the dynamite power of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Hard verses, but I do not believe that they are teaching that it is impossible for a believer to come to repentance after they have sinned. The word fall away is used one time in the New Testament and it's talking about uh, apostate walking away from Christ and his great salvation. It speaks of abandonment to Christ, not a backslidden state. Praise God. As Jeremiah tells us, return backsliding Israel. I will not cause my anger to fall upon you for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. And then he just encourages them and goes down to verse 22. Return you backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. Praise God, if you're backslidden here today and you know, man, I'm not, I don't want to like fall away from Christ and like just be like, no, God. No, I want God. I want to battle against this sin. I know that I'm backsliding. And come to Jesus today and, and find mercy and find grace to help you in this time of need. It's not talking about stumbling into sin and you can never repent from it, but it's, called, it's talking about falling away from Christ and de- totally departing from the person of Jesus Christ. It's only used in the book of Hebrews. It's similar though to the Hebrew word mahal, which means to deal treacherously with. Dealing treacherously with God, turning their back on Jesus Christ, rejecting so great a salvation, crucifying Jesus again, willingly rejecting him, The word crucifying is the present participle, present action. It could be read like this. They are crucifying himself again, or him again, right now. They are putting him to open shame right now. And that's why they can't be renewed to repentance because right now they've got the hammer and the spike and they're in the midst of it. It's impossible for someone to repent when they are abandoning their faith in Christ. Again, not that these people are wanting to come to repentance and be reconciled. They're in a place of current rejection. And it's impossible for them to be renewed as long as they're rejecting him. Lots to say, not a lot of time. In verses 7 and 8, we have a very sobering illustration from agriculture. Aren't they all? Verse seven, for the earth which drinks in the rain and often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So verse seven, the earth that brings forth good fruit is blessed by God. The earth that bears thorns and briars is burned in the fire. Those who sit under the gospel need to understand that there are eternal consequences for their hearing of the word. We need to be those who do the word. Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Jesus says in John 15, 
you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. If anyone in verse six does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And some people say, I don't like the sound of that, but they love the sound of easy believism. Just lift your hand up at the conference and never live for Jesus the rest of your life. Not a New Testament Christianity. John Brown, Scottish preacher, it may be that some conscience-struck, gospel-hardened sinners may be disposed to say, what is to be done in our fearfully alarming circumstances? We've just had ourselves described in this passage. What are we to do to be saved? My answer is to be in reality, which you have so long professed to be. You profess faith in Christ, well then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You have professed repentance towards God, then repent and be converted, every one of you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. From our God who is abundantly able to pardon A Bible-believing Christian would affirm that no one can name the name of Christ and continue to practice sin and rebellion to God, nor can one be an apostate openly denying Christ and still have the eternal hope of heaven. I believe that the gospel is that we are born again, We are filled with the Holy Spirit and he empowers us and sanctifies us. And though we may stumble and bumble, he will move us to repentance and battling sin and move us out of a lifestyle of practicing that sin. That's the the doctrine of sanctification. You know, one of my good friends, he was my youth pastor. He was the pastor when I was set ablaze for Christ. He did my wedding. He was one of my best friends in the whole entire world. And he left his beautiful wife and his beautiful kids. And he walked away from Christ, moved to Orange County, lived in drugs and sexual immorality. And that life dealt treacherously with his wife. Wouldn't reconcile. We met with him. We pled with him with tears and said, come back. And he said, no. And for years and years and years and years and years, he was just as dead as my dad. And I have a picture of him by my bed and my son would say, who's that man? And I said, that's my buddy, Mark. Where is he? How come we never see him? Well, son, because he has walked away from Jesus. And I said, and he's, I'll probably never see him again. I mean, that is, that is as dead as my dad is. but God. And a year ago, next month, he came and he stayed with us in Prineville. He's repented of his sin. He's walking in the spirit. He's obedient to the word. He's trying to reconcile and he's stumbling and bumbling still and people are angry with him. But you know what? My world's been rocked on my understanding of the perseverance of the saints because he was my example. A guy that spearheaded missions to Brazil for Calvary Chapel, (laughs) the whole church, Calvary Chapel, gone. 
but not anymore. And God is restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. I'm, I'm sorry, I wish I could give you all just a like, yeah, you know, once saved, always saved, no matter what. And, you know, or the other, like, I'm not there. I'm wrestling, okay? So wrestle with me. And you can talk to the elders, and they're going to have really good things to say. But um, <clears throat> I know Chuck Smith always said, you know, do I believe in once saved, always saved? Yes, providing your abiding. And, you know, that's not a Chuck Smithism, you know. But you read John 15 and you're like, man, you're not abiding in Christ. You're just in a dangerous place. And it's okay to warn each other that. It's okay to be putting placards up, you know, like, man, I'm warning you. Because I see this in your life and you're not turning from it. And you're hardening your heart. And man... It didn't go good for Judas Iscariot. It didn't go good for the children of Israel as they were wandering around in the wilderness. And I'm telling you, it's not going to go well for you. And so we've, we need to speak that into each other's life. Got the notes to do the rest of the book. We're just going to read verse 9. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. I love how the author, you know, there's this fearful passage, and you're like, oh gosh, if the book ended there, oh no. But beloved, we're confident of better things than all this for you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, the fruit of the Spirit. We're confident that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control that it all will be working out in you because the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you. He goes on in verse 10 to say, God's not unjust to forget your labor of love, which you've shown toward his name and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. So that's kind of like a breath of fresh air in something like this that we're studying. Like I'm confident that God's not gonna let you go. And that as I'm disciplining you and I'm correcting you, that you're gonna respond to that. We wanna respond to that today as well. Worship team, come on up. Um, Blaine, would you mind going and bringing the kids in to worship with us? You know, let me just read the end of the chapter here. Because there's hope in the midst of a passage like this, in the context of it all. And then you look in verse 19, a hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner is entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Is there eternal security? Yes. Do we have hope and assurance? I know the little kids, they're so cute. Got my little dude in his soccer cleats. and Okay, real quick. Is there hope? Is there eternal security? Yes, but who is it in? It's in the anchor of our soul. It's in the forerunner who's ascended and gone behind the veil. It's in our high priest. That's where our hope is at. And if you don't put your hope in him, there's no assurance. Let's pray. Lord God, let's stand. Lord, 
Thank you for your grace to speak to us tonight from your word and to warn us, even from the more Calvinistic theologians, even from maybe someone who has a bit of a more Arminian bent or a Molinistic bent, Lord, these different camps. Lord, that you would speak to us from all those guys and just warn us not to depart, not to fall away. Lord, I've been warned, we've been warned. And Lord, let us go from this place and just warn our brothers and warn our sisters and speak correction into their lives. Lord, today we hear your voice and we pray that you would work out just our salvation today. Just will and do in us for your good pleasure here. As we worship, as we sow to the spirit tonight, Lord, put to death in us lusts of the flesh and things that deceive us and cause us to depart from the living God, as Ephesians, or, uh, Hebrews 3.13 says. Have your way with us tonight as we worship. Just let us be led tonight in how to respond. But Lord, we wanna be counted and we wanna be numbered to be with you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.